0: Well, good morning again. Thanks for joining us here at Prayer View Christian Church. So, last week we started our Back to Basics sermon series answering some basic questions about who we are and what we do as believers in Jesus. First, we considered our God given identity as individual followers of Christ, and we spent most of our time in Ephesians 2 1 through 10. In that passage, the Apostle Paul reminds Christians of who we were in the past. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were following the ways of this fallen world, following the temptations of the devil himself, and following our corrupted flesh. Paul says we were sons of disobedience. We were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But thankfully, Paul doesn't just talk about who we were. He also reminds us of who we are now. We are alive together with Christ, saved by God's grace through faith, declared to be holy by God the Father, and being made holy by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, Paul reminds us of who we will one day be in the future. In the coming ages, we will be raised up and seated with God in the heavenly places, experiencing the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, there are all kinds of factors that contribute to who we are. All kinds of things make us who we are. But we Christians know that our identity in Christ is by far the most important thing. But now that we've covered our individual identity as believers in Jesus, what about our corporate identity? Our collective identity as a church? What happens when you cram all of these justified, sanctified, soon to be glorified individuals into the same room? What is our relationship with each other? And how do we live in unity in the midst of all our differences? That's what we'll discuss this morning, picking right back up where we left off in Ephesians 2. So open your Bibles to Ephesians 2, verse 11. Feel free to use the Bibles we have here if you didn't bring one and take a Bible home if you don't own one. And of course, we encourage you to follow along at home if you're live streaming Or watching later in the week. But before we read, let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for the opportunity to worship you, uh, the privilege, the joy of worshiping you. Uh, We were talking earlier this morning in our meeting about how being here is a responsibility in some sense and Yeah, it is. We're your people, and and you deserve our worship, and you do call us to obey you and gather in the church. But even though it's a responsibility, Lord, remind us that worship on Sunday morning is a joy. It's a privilege. It's an opportunity. And so I pray that you would use this time to build us up in our faith, remind us of the basics that we need to know, but also challenge us in ways that we need to be challenged And Lord, I pray that our worship would be honoring to you this morning. We love you. We honor you. We praise you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the biggest challenges the early church faced was unity between believers of different stripes. And that was especially the case for Jews and Gentiles. When it came to the relationship between these two groups... Both sides were often guilty of suspicion of the other, at best, or downright animosity towards the other, at worst. The Israelites were God's chosen people. They had Abraham and the promise. They had Moses and the law. They had David and the throne. They were graciously elected by God to be a great people. They were uniquely called into a close relationship with God that no other nation on earth could claim. And two of the most visible examples of the Jews' separation from everyone else were the covenant of circumcision and worship at the temple. In fact, the temple had a physical wall that separated the court of the Gentiles From everywhere else. And inscribed on that wall were warnings. That if a Gentile went too far into the temple. They would suffer death. There was a clear separation. Between these two groups of people. Now it's true that a Gentile could be welcomed into God's family. And that happens in the Old Testament. There are famous examples of it. But there was a catch. If a Gentile wanted to become part of God's family, they had to adopt Jewish beliefs, Jewish customs, and Jewish practices. And short, sure, Gentiles had to become Jews before they could truly call God their father. But then after Jesus' life and death and resurrection something strange started happening. The very Jewish apostles would go out, preach the gospel, often starting in the synagogues, and Gentiles would repent of their sin. Gentiles would believe in Israel's Messiah. And when these Gentiles believed, they would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The same way believing Jews would. So throughout the book of Acts, the apostles started to realize that apparently these Gentiles didn't have to become Jews to become part of God's family after all. It turns out that faith in Jesus is enough. So as this plays out, all of a sudden, the early church starts to get surprisingly Diverse. It's filled with people from different ethnic makeups, religious backgrounds, and cultural practices. And these people are all worshiping the one true God together. They're all taking communion together. They're all being baptized together. They're all being discipled together. Now you hear that and you think it's a beautiful picture. Well, yeah. It is a beautiful picture. But that diversity also started to present some challenges. How were all these people supposed to get along? Unity and diversity looks good on paper. It sounds really nice in slogans. But it's much more difficult in practice. In the year 1986, roughly 1,200 people banded together for a public demonstration in Los Angeles. But before long, there was conflict. Some people wanted to walk in the protest. Other people wanted to ride in cars. Some wanted a dress code. Others didn't. There was an election to solve these problems, but the election was declared invalid Because the group couldn't agree on who was allowed to vote and who wasn't. Eventually, every single person there went home angry. Now, what kind of event was this, you may ask? It was a peace march. The lesson is this. Maintaining unity amongst many very different individuals... Is hard work. It doesn't always come naturally. And maybe that's part of why Paul wrote. What we read in Ephesians 2. Starting in verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time. You Gentiles in the flesh. Called the uncircumcision. By what is called the circumcision. By the way calling them the uncircumcision. That was like a thick burn. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the father. So Paul begins by targeting the Gentiles in his audience, but he won't stay there for long. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Paul reminds the Gentiles of who they were before they believed. They were looked down upon by the Jews, separated from Christ, alienated from all the benefits of being one of God's people. They were hopeless. They were godless. Kind of makes you think of last week's sermon. Remembering who you were before Christ. But now something has changed. By faith in Jesus, these Gentiles who were once far off, who were once second-class citizens in a way, they have been brought near. They are welcomed in. They are no longer strangers to God's family. They are members in full standing. And how is this possible? The blood of Christ on the cross for their sins. The blood of Christ on the cross. Jesus Christ has brokered a peace treaty between these two drastically different groups of people. The wall that once separated them has been torn down. But Paul's not talking about the physical wall around the temple. He's talking about the wall of the Old Testament law, namely the practice of circumcision that once divided Jews and Gentiles. Thanks to Jesus, these ordinances no longer prevent Gentiles from having a full, authentic, reconciled relationship with God. These ordinances no longer separate Jew from Gentile into two different classes of people. For all who believe in Jesus, these ordinances, the Old Testament law, is no longer a condemning standard. It's no longer a heavy burden. It's a helpful tool. These two different people groups have been called together into one new man by faith in Christ. Clement of Alexandria a long time ago, once described Christians as a third race. A third race. A new man, unlike anything that came before it. All the things that once divided these people, ethnicity, religious backgrounds, cultural practices, the ceremonial marks on their bodies or lack thereof, all these things are overcome. By their mutual faith in Jesus. They are one new man. And now here's where things get interesting. Remember how we said that Paul starts by addressing Gentiles, but doesn't only address Gentiles. Look again at verses 11 through 18. If you pay attention, you'll see that Paul starts to sneak in words. As the verses go on, words like us and we and our. He argues that both Jews and Gentiles are reconciled to God through the cross. Jesus preached peace to both groups those far off, the Gentiles, and those near, the Jews. Both groups have the same access to the Father in the Holy Spirit. Now, what's so interesting about that? What's the big deal about that? Well, it's this. Paul is leveling the playing field between believing Jews and believing Gentiles. Both groups needed Jesus. Both groups needed the cross. Both groups needed their sins to be forgiven. In short, there are no second-class citizens in the church. There are no second-class citizens in the family of God. All are saved by God's grace. And all are saved by God's grace alone. Continuing in verse 19, Paul writes... In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So anyone who believes in Jesus, Jew, Gentile, past, present, first century Israel, or 21st century fishers, everyone in between, no matter how alike, no matter how different we are, by faith in Jesus, we have been reconciled to God. We are citizens of the same heavenly city, children in the same eternal household. And no matter how much or how little we might have in common, we have been reconciled to each other thanks to the gospel. It all rests on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. By his life, his death, his resurrection, Jesus has reconciled us to the Father, reconciled us to himself, and reconciled us and given us the Holy Spirit. But we've also been reconciled to each other. We're growing into a temple. We show the world what it means to worship the one true God by our fellowship. By our unity. We do it all together. Showing the world what the one true God is like. Reconciled not just to him, but reconciled to each other. Brothers and sisters. Friends. Fellow servants. Cat people and dog people. Reconciled to each other by faith in Christ. Christ. As we have fellowship with God, which we really do by Jesus' life and death and resurrection. We also have fellowship with each other, no matter how different we might be. So if I had to sum up last week's sermon, I'd use the phrase, set apart. As individuals, we've been set apart by God, for God. We're justified, we're being sanctified, and one day we'll be glorified by grace through faith. But if I had to sum up today's sermon, I'd use a different phrase. The phrase is called together. Called together. We're set apart as individual believers. But we're called together into churches. In the words of theologian Michael Horton, salvation is personal, but it is never private. There are no lone wolves. Despite our differences, our disagreements, our quirks, and our baggage, and I'm sure we all have our fair share, we are called together by God. We are a family. You might not have anything in common with the two people who got baptized today. No similar interests, no similar hobbies, no similar political opinions, different personalities. You might be as different as you can imagine from those two people. But you have more in common with that fellow believer than you do with someone who is exactly like you and yet is not a follower of Christ. You have more in common with that fellow believer than with anyone else. That is our unity. That is who we are. So if you haven't picked up on it yet, the big focus of this sermon is unity. And part of the reason I felt the need to really focus on that this morning is the current climate that we live in. The societal, political, ideological climate that we all inhabit. I think we can all acknowledge that we live in an incredibly, exasperatingly, mind numbingly divisive time. Polarization, as the experts call it, feels like it is at an all time high. Everyone is expected to hold the right position on everything, at all times, from the famous celebrity to the anonymous stranger on the street. Not only that, it seems as though we're being constantly pushed to the extremes with every issue. And there's never any middle ground. Whether it's social tensions or culture war battles or political debates or COVID controversies, there is ample opportunity for us to disagree with one another, to judge one another, and divide from one another. The world and the devil himself are quite good at building walls between Christians and within churches. They don't need our help. So perhaps the most basic thing we can remember at a time like this is who we are. Set apart as individual believers, but called together into a church. Don't forget the power of the cross to turn enemies into friends, strangers into siblings, and aliens into citizens. Jesus Christ is our peace. We are one new man in place of the old in him, a third race. Jesus has torn down the dividing wall of hostility between believers of different histories and different practices and different opinions in order to unite us together. Not so that we can rebuild old hostilities, rebuild old rivalries, revisit old tensions. Or so that we can invent new ones or construct new ones. Our mutual faith in Jesus is stronger than our different personalities. It's stronger than the latest outrage that we're told to care about. It's stronger than all the things the world tells us we should divide over. And if it isn't stronger than those things, if our unity as Christians, if our unity as a church, runs no deeper than the unity of a sports team, or a biker gang, or a book club. If our unity runs no deeper than that, then you can't blame people for assuming that this gospel we preach maybe isn't as powerful as we say it is. If it can't bring us together. In the words of N.T. Wright, maintaining Christian unity is not just a matter of preventing squabbles and hurt feelings within the church. That's part of it, but it's not all of it. He says it is part of essential Christian witness to the one Lord. Theologian J. Dwight Pentecost tells the story of a disagreement within a church that made its way to secular courts and then got shot back to a denominational court and eventually led to an ugly parting of ways. The church split into two. And supposedly, the straw that broke the camel's back was when an elder received a smaller slice of ham at a church meal than the person seated next to him. Now, that may sound like an especially silly and trivial example of division that we would never divide over something so inconsequential as a piece of ham. However, many of the things that we are tempted to divide over may end up, in the eternal scheme of things, proving to be silly and trivial as well. The problem of division in the church is nothing new, and the temptation that we face to divide for foolish reasons isn't going to go away this side of Christ's return. Paul once wrote to a particularly divided church in the city of Corinth. People in Corinth took sides over which teacher they liked best and how they chose to share their meals with non-believers and which spiritual gifts were the most impressive. Disagreements turned into lawsuits between siblings in Christ and interpersonal conflict even started to spill over into their practice of communion, started to hijack their gathered worship which we'll talk about next week. So it's no wonder that Paul writes what he does in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 and 13. He says there, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So the church is a body with many members. We're all different, but we all play a role in the church's health. We're diverse on our own, but unified in our larger purpose. In one sense, we're independent of each other. But in another sense, we can't function or thrive without each other. And God has called the members of this body together for a good reason. His glory. So we better have a darn good reason to divide. Paul says later in Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord One baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We're not going to agree on everything this side of heaven. If we could, Paul would not have needed to write these words. Sometimes we really do have to learn to bear with one another. And yes, there are some things that we really do need to agree on. There are fundamental truths and essential practices of our faith that we have to be on the same page about to honestly call each other brother and sister or to peacefully worship in the same church. Some things really are worth dividing over. But as long as we share the same spirit, the same hope, the same call, the same Lord, the same faith, the same baptism, and the same Father... As long as we share those things, we should think long and hard and pray long and hard before we form factions or split Christ's body. He is our peace. He has made us one new man. He has broken down the wall of hostility between us. He has reconciled all of us to God in one body through the cross. We are called together. So the focus last week, reconciled to God. The focus this week, reconciled to each other. Set apart as individual believers, called together to a collective body of believers, a church. So by the Father's grace, the Spirit's power, and with the Word's guidance, may we guard our unity in Christ. May we guard the unity of our church. May we resist attempts by the world and the devil and the sin that still lives within us. May we resist their attempts to divide us. May Jesus' prayer for unity from John 17 be fulfilled through us as brothers and sisters, as a family. May we be one, even as God is one. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to read from your word. Thank you for the guidance that you give us. As we all know, it's hard to be a church. Whether you're a church of 100 or a church of 1,000 or a church of 10,000, there are so many differences to navigate and personalities to figure out and endless potential for disagreement and frustration and annoyance and all those things. But Lord, when those things come, which they inevitably will, I pray that we would remember who we are as individuals in Christ. And that we would remember how you've called us together. That no matter how different we might seem, we are brothers and sisters united by Christ's blood. And that is thicker, that is more significant than any other thing that might unite or divide people. So, Lord, again, help us protect our unity as a church. Help us love our brothers and sisters who are different from us. I pray that you would watch over this church. Again, in an age and a time and a setting where it's so, so easy to split. And so, so easy to look down upon each other, assume the worst about each other, or elevate disagreements far higher than they ought to be. I pray that you'd give us wisdom, give us humility, and give us unity. Being united together in you, being united to you by Christ's body and blood. Again, we love you, we worship you, we praise you. We ask this all in Jesus' name.